We're going to overlap just a little bit with last week. And uh, thank you guys. That is a great song. I love that song. And I'm so thankful for the fact that Jesus saves. Praise the Lord for that. Uh, I'm glad that all the glory goes to Him, aren't you? And uh, when people get saved, when lives are changed, when uh, the, the bondage falls away and freedom comes, that it's not glory to a church, it's not glory to a man, but the glory all goes to God. And praise the Lord for that. First John chapter 2 this morning. Stand with me as you find your place there, if you will. And First uh, John chapter 2, we're going to begin reading in verse number 5. We covered some of this last week as we uh, really kind of looked at uh, more in depth on some of these first verses that we'll see this week. But now they tie back into where we'll be this week. And so we're kind of just coming back and, uh, and circling them back into uh, where we are and where we're heading. First John chapter 2, beginning in verse number 5. It says, But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith, saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which he had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which he had heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past, and the true light now shineth. He that saith, he is in the light, and hateth his brothers in darkness, even until now. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness, and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whither he goeth, because that darkness hath blinded his eyes. Father, I pray that you would speak to our hearts today. I pray that you would give exactly what we need, and I pray that you would help us, Lord, to be able to leave encouraged, uplifted, uh, changed. Lord, that you would help us to leave uh, with those uh, old areas, those old things being made new, and Lord, that we would truly uh, be able to meet with you in a special way today. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. It's a popular movie that was made several years ago, and I don't reference movies often, but I'll reference this one for a moment. With this caveat, I want to encourage you, don't start quoting lines in your head. The movie was about a young man who was truly in love. The young man uh, uh, came, and this lady, her name was Buttercup. See, that's why I said, don't start quoting lines in your head. The whole movie was about how true love carried them both through the difficult circumstances of life so that they could be brought back together. And, and uh, in reality, it said that true love is that which uh, would allow us to not be able to die. And that's really the message of the whole movie. If you have true love, you can't die because that true love must be cared for. And it's a good movie, and it's an interesting, I think it is, it's an interesting movie, and, and I like watching some of the different parts, especially when he talks about marriage, bringing us together today, that's my favorite part of the whole movie. And uh, uh, there's this true love that says we will survive. But isn't it interesting, even in that movie that we probably would look at and say that it is, uh, especially in comparison with a lot of other movies today, a fairly good movie, that the message of that movie is true love will cause you to not ever die. And yet the biblical message is true love is that which causes you to die. Isn't it interesting? And the reality is this morning, we're going to look at the subject of true love. And really we could title about half of the messages in 1 John, true love. But uh, we'll try to find some creative ways of titling that a little bit different as we go. But this morning, looking at true love. And, and what is it? How do we have this true love? And we find that the greatest picture of true love is Jesus Christ. Amen? 
No doubt about it, no debate there. Uh, Jesus, the God-man who uh, chose to come from heaven to this earth, that alone being an act of true love, but then beyond that, going all the way to the cross and choosing to lay down his life physically. Of course, he would take it up again. Praise the Lord for that. And today he's seated on the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. Praise the Lord for that. But what love to be willing to come and to die physically for us. We know us well enough to know we're not worth the God of heaven dying in our place. And yet true love said, I'm not choosing to survive, I'm choosing to lay down my life for my friends. Even while many of you, according to Romans, are still at enmity with God in the moment that I'm laying down my life. What a love. What a sacrifice, what sacrificial, real, true love is pictured in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we'll find that true love in our lives oftentimes does not require the physical laying down of our life. But it still requires death. For if we are going to love truly, then there must be the death of self must be a death to selfishness. There must be a death uh, to everything that is involved with that and and centered around that. A love that uh, that does not demand. A love that is not uh, seeking his own. A love that is understanding and patient and kind. Uh, A love that is not uh, demanding everything that we desire be done for us. But rather a love that says, I'm willing to lay down my desires, my pleasures, my selfishness, I'm willing to die to self that I may be a blessing to somebody else. I wonder, have you died to selfish motivations, selfish desires, selfish demands? A love, this is a love which operates from a place of hope rather than from a place of strict expectation. You know what we do a lot of the time in life is we enter into a relationship and it might be a relationship with a spouse, it might be a relationship as a church member, it might be a relationship, uh, it could be any, we can put whatever relationship there, a work relationship, whatever it might be, and we enter into that uh, relationship with strict expectations. I mean, surely when I marry this person, they will know to not squeeze the toothpaste from the middle. And then we find out they didn't meet the expectation, and, I mean, our life just falls apart. Amen? Uh, I mean, surely they'll know that when you walk in the house, you don't take off your jacket and throw it on one chair, take off your tie and throw it on another chair. I mean, surely they'll know better than that, right? All of your husbands must be perfect. My wife's probably laughing. Um, The reality is that we all have things, do we not, that we don't meet one another's expectations and oftentimes those first uh, months or years of marriage can be a great challenge because we have all these expectations and some of them or many of them just are not met. We have to figure out, do I really love this person? Am I willing to lay down all my expectations? And so rather than operate from a place of expectation, we ought to operate from a place of hope. You know, I hope they'll learn how to squeeze that toothpaste right. (laughs) But if they don't, I'm not going to choose to be angry with them about it. It's not worth ruining the relationship over a tube of toothpaste. You know, I hope my husband will learn when he comes home not to throw his coat on one chair and his tie on the other. But if not, it's not worth ruining a marriage over a coat and a tie. 
We can say, I hope they will. I hope they'll grasp. I hope they'll respond. I hope this will happen or that'll happen. But rather than a place of expectation, operating from a place of hope, a place that allows us to say it doesn't have to be my way. It's not strict expectation all the time. But rather there can be hope. There can be a place of, uh, of love, of gentleness, a place of growth. And growth can happen and be okay. And by the way, uh, this is just a side thought. But as new believers come into our church, we need to operate from a place of hope. I hope one day that they'll learn how to have uh, this standard. I hope one day that they'll learn how to operate in this way. I hope one day that their children will stop terrorizing mine. I hope that one day these things will happen, but if not, I'm still going to love them because I do not love that person based on what they do for me or even based on what they do for the Lord. I love them because God told me to love them. And do you realize God's love for us is not based on what we do for him? We do for him what we do. If we're doing it biblically and right, we do for him what we do in service because he first loved us. We don't do it to try to gain love. We can't get any more love than what he's already given. And so his love is not based on what we do. He does love from a place of hope. He wants us to learn and to grow. And he gives us commands along that line and direction. And he'll chasten when we go the wrong. And, and he chastens everyone whom he loves. And so we know that that's all a part of it. But the reality is, God is not sitting in heaven saying, well, if they would just act right, I would love them a little more. Or because I saved them and now they're acting like that, I just don't know if I can love them anymore. Aren't you glad he doesn't work like we do? And so we see this love, it requires death. It's not a love that saves from death, it's a love that requires death. It requires death of self. It requires death of expectation. I wonder to this morning, uh, what characterizes your love for others? Is it expectation or is it hope? Is it requirement or is it sacrifice? What kind of a love do you have others. I want you to see this morning three truths about love, and we'll try to get through these as quick as we can and see if we can make it all the way, but, but there's so much here in this passage that tells us how do we have a true love that God wants us to have. First of all, I see love developed. If we're going to have a true love, it must be developed in our life. We don't just get it instantly the moment that we get saved, but it takes some labor, it takes some work, it takes some understanding uh, of some things, and it takes the Holy Spirit of God developing and working that in us so that it can then come through us to other people. And so we see love developed. And I see, first of all, in verse number five, uh, we're going to see the direction of his love. It says, but whoso keepeth his, God's word, in him verily is the love of God perfected or brought to maturity, completion. Hereby know we that we are in him. Now we looked at that verse last week uh, quite a bit, looking at assurance of salvation, that we can know that we are in him. And praise the Lord for that. But this week, as we see it here, it's the lead-in kind of to this next section uh, as well. And we see here the direction of his love. The Bible tells us, John three sixteen, the most popular verse in Scripture, that God so loved all the really good people who went to church every Sunday. No, of course not. God so loved the world. Every person in the world. You say, Pastor, you're preaching John 3.16 on Sunday morning. I mean, we know John 3.16. This isn't like a a special day where we've invited our community in. Why are we talking about God so loved the world? (laughs) Because we understand, number one, he is the source of love. It's God's love. It's not our love. It's not the love we muster up. It's not the love that we attempt to have. But we know the source of love must be God. And then we see that we are merely the conduits of love. 
Once you know Christ as your Savior, uh, you are the conduit then that is to take the very love that God has and spread it or uh, uh, expose it to this world. We're supposed to be the ones who take the love of God and love others with it. The people of the world then, John 3.16, are the objects of God's love. Now, we understand we are also the object of God's love. Amen? Don't misunderstand. Don't say, oh man, pastor's saying once you get saved, you're no longer uh, experiencing the love of God. No, we are. But we also become a conduit then. So here's what he's saying. John chapter, uh, or excuse me, 1 John chapter 2, verse number 5. It says, whoso keepeth his word in him. That's in the person. Verily is the love of God perfected. And I started thinking about that. And I thought, Lord, how is it that your love, it's so much more pure and holy It is so far beyond what any man can love with. How could that love be perfected in me? Because there's no way it can be completed. It's already completed with you. It's already better than what I can ever really have. And how is it that it can be brought to completion? How is it that it can be perfected? That doesn't really make sense to me. Does that make sense to you? I mean, the love that God has is perfected in us then as a believer. But here's what I think the idea of this is. It's that God's love is there. It's real. It's beyond anything we can ask or imagine. It's beyond anything we can ever really fully possess. But it's not really brought to completion until it flows through a believer and to the world around us. Because God has chosen to use us to carry forth the love of God. He's chosen to use us to tell people that he loved them so much that he died on a cross, that he rose again the third day, and that he's offering them everlasting life today. God loves people, and God decided, instead of him just uh, over and over and over down through the centuries coming to visit earth and tell people that he loves them, he chose in his wisdom to use us to perfect his love by getting it to the objects of his love who don't even know that he loves them yet and tell them about Jesus. What an incredible reality, what an incredible responsibility we have there. Because we get to carry forth the message, the good news of the gospel. There's a God in heaven who loves you and who died for you. We see the direction of his love. The direction is for those even who do not know of him. Even those who would seem to be the enemies of God. He loves them. Do you realize this morning uh, that, that God, and if you thought about this morning, God loves Nancy Pelosi? You say, well, I don't. You should. You should love her enough to pray for her. The Bible tells us pray for those uh, people who are in positions of authority. And uh, certainly it works different in our government, but there's some element of that there. The Bible tells us that we need to be praying for uh, people like that to be saved. We need to be praying for somebody like her to be saved. Hey, we ought to love her enough to be praying for her. I don't like her politics, but I should not hate the person. I should love Nancy Pelosi enough that I'm saying, Lord, would you bring somebody by her office? Lord, would you bring somebody by her street? Lord, would you bring somebody that could tell her the gospel and that she might get saved? And by the way, if she were to get saved and completely turn and start following biblical principles, isn't it amazing to think what God could do with somebody like that? I mean, after all, he did it with Saul. The reality is this. Sometimes we look at certain people and say, but they're kind of the enemy of God. Look at the things they promote. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But God still loves them. And that love is perfected when we carry it to those people. So we see here the direction of his love is to the world. Uh, And then we see secondly, or the second element here, the design 
of his love. So the love is developed. First of all, we have to understand its direction. Then the design. What does it look like? How does it happen? And I, I, we could probably go on all day with different ideas here, but I just want to give you three thoughts uh, that the Lord gave me. Number one, it's a love that is deep enough to be calmly confrontational. I just sat for a little bit and I thought, what did, how, do, how was Jesus when he was on earth? How did he express the love of God? One of the things that he did is he was calmly confrontational. You know, Jesus, uh, in fact, this morning I was reading, and, and nothing to do with the message today, but I was reading in uh, just my devotions in Matthew chapter 15, where uh, the disciple, Jesus said something, the disciples came running and they said, Jesus, Jesus, they said, oh, did, didn't you realize when you said that, when the Pharisees heard it, they were offended. You know what his answer was? In essence, don't worry about it. Because you know what? It wasn't that he didn't love them, but here's what he did do. He loved them enough to tell them they were wrong. Some years ago, uh, there was a so-called preacher that did an interview, and you probably know about it on Larry King Live. And uh, he sat there, and they said, "Is sin? Uh, what do you think about sin? They tried and tried to get him to talk about sin. He wouldn't do it. And he said, well, I really just, uh, the idea, I just preach the gospel. I really don't confront people about sin. Okay, well, then he doesn't preach the gospel. Amen? The reality is this. We have to love people enough to be willing to take the message of the word of God and go to somebody and say, listen, you are a sinner who's in need of a Savior. Exposing their sin. Not going with a, a harshness. Not going to beat them over the head with the scripture, so to speak. Not going to try to, uh, to hurt people or anything of that nature. But there's a calmness. You say, well, pastor, what about when Jesus went in with whips? There's a time for that. But most of the time, you watch Jesus, he's calmly confrontational. He, he very uh, gently comes in and, and very strongly, very harshly sometimes even with words, but also at the same time, there's a gentleness to it. And, and it's the idea of the iron fist and the velvet glove. He cares for the person. And isn't it amazing, even some of the Pharisees came to know Jesus as their Savior. And it's because he was confronting their sin. He was dealing with those things. And we have to love people enough to calmly confront their sin, calmly confront their wrong thinking. Uh, calmness reigns, not looking to prove a point but looking to exhort the brethren. Do you realize we should, uh, we should deal with sin, we should deal with wrong thinking, and we should even deal with it amongst one another? And I'll tell you, I don't have a real hard time confronting uh, the, the crowd that's pro-abortion. It's pretty easy for me to say uh, in a message, it's pretty easy for me to say uh, wherever it is, if somebody comes and says, I think it ought to be women's rights and women ought to be able to have an abortion if they want to, it's pretty easy for me to say, no, 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 the Bible says very clearly uh, that life begins uh, in the womb and that the Bible makes it very clear that that's not just a fetus, but it's a child and uh, that's the Bible word. And so the Bible's really clear that that is murder. I mean, I can deal with that. I can confront that's not a problem. Do you know what's hard? When someone else in the church is thinking wrong and to sit down and say, you know, this thought process, this pattern, it's not really biblical. I don't think there's anything more difficult than that. But you know what God says when we love each other with this kind of a love? We'll do that, but we'll do it in a spirit that doesn't bring strife. And so uh, there is a, uh, a love that is deep enough to be calmly confrontational. Secondly, it's a love that is real enough to speak the truth. 
We're not just going and, and blasting things. We're not coming up with ideas and opinions. We're not just going and, and blurting things, but rather we're speaking the truth. So this means it's not characterized by double speak. It's not a love uh, that is selfish again, so we're not going and just kind of saying one thing over here and another thing over there and all that. We're, we're clear, we're straight, we're down the path, we're saying the same thing, and, and so there's a truthfulness to it. So this love then, it is characterized by balance. The Bible tells us in uh, verse number six, he that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk even as he walked. All right, how did Jesus walk? Well, he was the balance of truth and love. That's how he walked. And we must have that exact same balance, truth and love. We must love people. We also must speak truth. And we must never uh, allow uh, either of those to become out of balance. Ephesians 4.15 says, But speaking the truth in love, there's the balance, speaking the truth in love, may grow up, and speaking of the church, may grow up into him, Jesus, in all things. So every area of our life should be growing up into Christ or becoming more and more like Jesus, more and more like him. We're growing up in him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. He's the one who's the head of the church. He's the one we're becoming like. How do we do that? Well, according to Ephesians 4, in part, it's by speaking the truth in love. When we're in a church where truth is spoken in love, then we are growing up as a church into him in all things. In all areas. We're, we're laboring together. We are working together. Uh, really what it becomes is a teamwork. And, and we are uh, we're, we're helping one another consistently and constantly. And, and the conversations become spiritual. You know, fellowship is not a time to just uh, sit around and, and uh, shoot the breeze about the football game. And not that that's sinful or wrong. But the majority of our fellowship ought to be spiritual conversation. That's why we're here. Amen. And we ought to have fellowship that is, hey, you know what I learned in my devotions this week? Hey, you know how God spoke to me this week? Let me just tell you, I was really struggling in this area. And man, I was, I, I was, I was in sin in this thing, and God spoke to me, and God renewed that area, and I got things right on Tuesday morning, and I'm telling man, it has been a wonderful rest of the week. Wouldn't it be something if that was the conversation? Too many churches, the goal is to look good instead of to be real. This is truth and love. I'm just telling you, uh, I, I messed up this week and God brought restoration in that area. Or I messed up 10 years ago and this week God helped me get it restored. Man, God is good, isn't he? What testimonies, and when we talk of those things, that's what our fellowship is centered on, or it should be centered on as believers. So now we're speaking the truth in love. It's one to another, and all of us that are growing up into Christ in all things across the board. And then, so that the, it's characterized by this balance, this love is, and the result of it is maturity. Look at verse number five again. Whoso keepeth his word in him, verily is the love of God perfected. It's mature. The same idea is in Ephesians chapter 4. It brings to maturity, but when it's a church where we are speaking, and this isn't just the preaching from the pulpit, but this is the idea of all of us together. We're speaking the truth in love with balance, and, and we're helping one another to grow into Christ in every area of our lives. And when that is happening, and we are growing up into Christ in all things, even he, which is the head, even Christ, the next verse says, from whom the whole body fitly joined together. Isn't it amazing how God all of a sudden starts bringing maturity? God starts bringing a unity in the church. 
Because we're all saying, you know what, I'm not perfect and I don't have it all figured out. And someone else says, well, neither do I. And somebody says, well, well, this week God spoke to me about this and I got it right. And said, well, you know, this week God spoke to me about that and I got it right. And, and then on this other morning, God really encouraged my heart with this thought. And, and, and all of a sudden there's this unity that builds. Because it's not about what I can do versus what you can do. It's how can we grow up into Christ and all things together as we're maturing in him. And that brings a a unity in the church. It says it's fitly joined together and compacted by that, which every joint supply it. How? According to the effectual working and the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. All right, so it makes an increase of the body unto, here's what's happening, the edifying, that's speaking truth, of itself in love love. There's the balance. It started with speaking the truth in love, verse number 15. It ends in verse number 16, 16, these two verses, with, in essence, speaking the truth in love, edifying in love, that now we're just laboring together, speaking the truth in love. We're just saying, it's not a confrontation of, man, I see something wrong in your life, and, and I'm just here to help you figure everything out. It's not trying to get the moat out of the brother's eye while we have a beam in ours. But rather, it's just, hey, could I, could I help you along here a little bit? And, and by the way, if you see something in my life, help me along. And we're not offended by it. We're just growing up in all things in Christ together. And there's a unity. There's a joy. There's an excitement that comes in that. A love that is real enough to speak the truth and to do it with balance. And then we see uh, that it's a love that is grounded enough to be kind. It's grounded enough to be kind. It's grounded in the word of God. So it causes us to be kind one to another. Kind to our enemies as Jesus was kind to his enemies. Jesus died on that cross for the ones who nailed him there just as much as for any other. While they put the holes in his hands and in his feet and in his brow, he hung uh, loving those people. We ought to be kind. We ought to be loving our enemies. We ought to be kind to our family. One of the great tragedies that I see is people who are not kind to the people that really ought to be the most important to them. And we ought to be kind to our family. It ought to be a place that we are marked with kindness within our home. Uh, we ought to be kind in our churches. Jesus gave himself for the church. We also should give sacrificially of ourselves for one another, for the brethren, and for the sistren too. Amen? And uh, we ought to be giving of ourselves sacrificially. And, and so we see here, first of all, that, uh, and number one's the long point, that this is a love that is developed. It's developed in us by the Lord Jesus Christ. But then it's a love that must be displayed. So how is love displayed? Verse number eight says, again, well actually let's uh, hit verse seven real fast. Uh, it's kind of confusing here. Verses seven and eight says, no new command, uh, I write no new commandment unto you. Verse eight he says, a new commandment I write unto you. So what's he talking about? This is not a new commandment. You've had it from the beginning. And this is a new commandment. And I'm giving it to you right now. And it is, it is new, but it's not new. He's talking about two different things. He's talking about in verse number seven. This is an old commandment. He's not talking about the beginning of time here. It's not the same word as in the beginning God created. This is from the beginning. And it would really look back to the beginning of the church time, the church age. Uh, and so what he's doing is he's looking back to Jesus. He's saying, look, from the beginning of this time, from the beginning of him organizing his church and putting his church together and all those things, he's going back to when we were walking with him. So from the beginning of all this idea of the church, you've had this command. What was the command? That we should love one another. 
So he's saying that command, that's been there from the get-go. That's been there as long as the idea of the church has been here now uh, that Christ brought in. And so that's an old command. But now he says there's a new command that I'm going to give to you. And this new command deals with walking in light rather than in darkness. And he's saying there's an element here that you need to understand, and there's some things that you need to grasp. And so now he's saying that in verse number 8. Verse number 9, He that saith he is in the light and hateth his brother is in darkness even until now. Don't actually raise your hand, but how many of you would say, Pastor, I hate other people in this church. I mean, right now I'm sitting here just seething with hatred. My guess is, there might be somebody, but my guess is, none of us are here just seething with hatred. I haven't seen yet anyway, any uh, I've heard of in other churches, but I haven't seen anybody here that somebody sits way on this side and somebody sits way on that side and they make sure this guy comes in first and that guy comes in later and that guy leaves first and this guy leaves later so they never cross paths because they just hate each other. Hopefully that's not the case. That should never be the case in the church, amen? But that's not what he's talking about. He's not using the word that is a seething, outward hatred that is there. This word, it's the same idea as when Jesus said to the, uh, the disciples that uh, you are not worthy to follow me unless you hate father and mother and children, and, uh, unless you hate your family. Here's what it means. It means to love less. So if there's anybody that you love less than some of the others, well, that makes a problem. Because probably all of us, if we're operating in the flesh, certainly, we have people we more naturally click with. We have people that we love the same, we just don't naturally click with them. And then we have those people. You ever been around one of those people in church that they just bug you? I mean, I know we're not supposed to say that that's possible, but... We are human, amen? <laughs> and there's some people, they just rub us the wrong way. And, and we don't hate them. I mean, we're not hoping that they die in a car crash on the way home today and, and they're no more heard of. And we're not praying, Lord, would you wipe their name right off of the face of the earth? We're not praying a David prayer against them and that kind of I mean, we're saying, Lord, they're a good person. I, I like them. Would you just maybe help them to find somebody else to talk to for a while? I mean, they're just somebody, I, I don't not love them, I just don't maybe love them the same as some. And he says, if we have that kind of an, a mentality, if we have that kind of an attitude, it, it would have the idea of this, it would have the, this word, it means to strongly dislike, or this, and I thought this part was important, to have an aversion to. So you say, well, you know, I don't, I don't hate anybody at church, but there's some people that if I can, I kind of avoid them. Okay, according to this word hate, you're in this passage. You hate your brother in what he's saying here. I'm avoiding that person. I have a little bit of an aversion to that person. I, I, I just kind of love them a little bit less than others. I wouldn't say it that way, but, but in essence, that's what it is. I kinda, if I can go around, if I can not have to talk to them, then I will. So we see here, first of all, this love is to be displayed in the church. It's to be displayed between brethren. That we don't have anybody that we try to avoid. We don't have anybody that we have an aversion to. There's not anybody that we love them less than we love other people that are in the church. 
or we love less than ourselves, or that we love less than what God would, really, is what this would boil back to. And so it's a love that is pure, that is from God, that flows through us to others. And primarily, he's using this here to say, look, this is displayed in the church. It ought to be there for those out there, too. But this is where we display it. This is where that love, it just, uh, it's evident. And somebody ought to walk into our church and say, you know, I don't know everything about those people, and I don't know everything even maybe about what they believe, but I'll tell you one thing, I've never been anywhere where people love each other like that. I've never been anywhere where everybody got along like that. I mean, I didn't see anybody that didn't just look excited to talk to everybody. They talked. There was just a joy in that place. And I don't know how that even happens with that many people, but man, those people love each other. That's what he's saying. So there's no aversion. And look what he says. If we do have that, if we do hate our brother, then we are in darkness, even until now. Now, John is writing to Christians. He's writing to a church. So he's not saying they're unsaved. In fact, he has just written, as we saw last week, on how they can know that they're saved and they can have assurance of salvation. He's not saying they're not saved. He's saying that they are living in this darkness. The word darkness here, uh, it means to live in ignorance of God's ways. So here's what he says. They are ignorant of the ways of God when it comes to biblical love. You say, Pastor, I'm not very happy about that. I mean, the reality is there is somebody here that I don't really particularly care for at times. And the reality is that when you're saying that, you're calling me ignorant. No, 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 I'm not. John is, but I'm not. I just want to clarify. Uh, That's the Holy Spirit, though. And here's the reality of it. We all live there sometimes. We all get bugged sometimes. We all get a little short with each other sometimes. If we're going to labor together, there's going to be days where we end up walking in darkness. And aren't you glad we can come back to the cross and we can get renewed and we can get it right and it can be forgiven? And, And if it's there between somebody and it's been obvious, we have to go to that person and get that right also got to be right this way if we're going to be right this way. But aren't you glad we can go get it right? Amen. Praise the Lord for that. Here's the thing. We can't just go back to having an aversion. So we've got to battle. We've got to come back and say, how, how do I do that? Well, it's by not being ignorant of his ways when it comes to his love. And so we see here that this is displayed in the church and it's displayed consistently. That's what it's saying to us here in verse number 10. There's not lapses. There's not times that uh, we are and times that we're not. If we're consistently coming back to this place uh, where we are uh, averting, uh, uh, having an aversion to somebody in the church, where we're not loving them in a biblical uh, kind of a manner and we don't have a genuine Christ-like love for them, then really we're walking in a place of darkness. The place of darkness we understand scripturally is the place that uh, that that force that evil would abide, that evil would reside. And so there is evil that is in our heart. Why? Because really what we are is we're alive to selfishness rather than alive to God. Because remember, true love really comes back to we have to put to death self. Because the Bible tells us, great peace have they which love thy law and... Don't you hate that next word? I mean, if it just said great peace have they which love thy law and they won't be often offended... We could live it. Nothing. So when we're walking right with him and when we're in the word right and when we are loving the scripture as we should and dying to self and alive to Christ, nothing offends us. That's an incredible statement. 
That's what he tells us. Love is displayed in the church, and love is displayed consistently. We see here the direction of love. We see the display of love. And then finally, number three, love is destroyed. This is in verse number 11. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness. And, I'm sorry, that was verse number nine I've been referring to as verse number 10. He that hateth his brother is in darkness and walketh in darkness and knoweth not whither he goeth, because that darkness hath blinded his eyes. We see here love is destroyed completely now, verse number 11, and we can get here if we're not careful. And he gives us a couple thoughts. Number one, the reality. We cannot have light and darkness together. For the light of Christ, the true light, dispels all darkness. So we can't have we can't have an admixture of them and have love perfected in us. So it's got to be fully surrendered to Christ. So that's the reality. And then he tells us what the ramifications are. So here's what happens when we allow an aversion or a lack of biblical love for our spouse or for our children or for somebody that is in our church or even for somebody maybe who's lost and seems to be our enemy and the enemy of God, when we have an aversion, when we have a, uh, a hatred, the biblical word hatred there, when we have a lack of love for that person and we are not loving as Christ would, and, and, and really we're specifically here talking about the brethren, and, and so when we have not got that love for somebody, for the brethren, whether it's in our family, in our church family, then here's what he says. Here's the outcome. Here's the ramifications. Number one, he's in darkness. Okay, so he tells us that's where we're abiding, that's where we are. And then he says, number two, they are walking in that darkness. The word walking, that's the manner of life or behavior. Now remember, back over, verse number six, he that saith he abideth in him ought himself also to walk even as he walked. So it tells us, verse number six, this is how we should be walking, even as he walked. Verse number 11 But if we're living in this darkness, if we're not having a biblical love, then we are not. We're actually walking in darkness. We're not walking as he walked. So John here, John writes this letter in pure black and white. He doesn't leave any gray area. He he is writing to deal with some things that are going on in the church. So he's very, uh, very down the line on everything. Everything is just, this is the way it is. So he draws two very strong distinctions. We're either walking in him and as he walked, or we're walking in darkness and we're not walking as he walked. But as strong as John writes that, don't we find that to be true? Either we are or we're not. Because there can't be light in dark. So he tells us, you're in the darkness, you're walking in the darkness. Then it tells us he's lost in the darkness. He knoweth not whither he goeth. He got lost in there. So this person can get stuck in this rut. Have you ever gotten stuck in the rut of not loving biblically? I have. It can be with one person or it could be just overall. It becomes selfish and it becomes about me and all of a sudden I'm not loving as I should and before long I can't even figure out how to get back to that place. I need God to do something miraculous. I need him to, uh, to bring me back to the place where he can set my feet on a rock and he can establish my goings because I don't even know how to get back. We get lost in that darkness. So he tells us we can get stuck there, we can get lost there, that we don't even recognize we're there anymore a a lot of the time because we're just in that place. That's the next wording, that he is blinded by the darkness. We don't even see it as darkness anymore. Uh, We don't even recognize what it is. Notice he does not say that their eyes don't work. They're not blinded, they're blinded by the darkness. 
you ever been in a, a cave when they turn the lights off and it's pure pitch black? I always wish they'd wait a little bit longer. I think it's for the kids. They just do that for like four seconds and my eyes haven't had time to adjust. So I don't really know how dark it is because I'm still seeing lights all around. And, uh, but they say that when you get there, and if they leave those lights off long enough for you to actually have your eyes adjust to that darkness, they can't really adjust. And no matter how uh, much movement there is or what, that you can't see anything because it's true, utter pitch blackness. That's what he's saying. We can, in the Christian life, come to the place where we're stumbling around in the dark and we don't even realize how pitch black it is anymore because we've lost a biblical love. So I ask you this morning, how's your love? Do you have a true love? Do you have a biblical love that causes you to put self to death? and then sacrificially love others. And not just those that uh, it would make sense to love, but even those that makes no sense, even those who grate the wrong direction on your nerves. Do you love them for the biblical love? Is there anyone you have an aversion to? Especially within our church, but maybe it's within your family or whatever it might be. Is there anyone that you just kind of have an aversion? That you love them a little bit less if you're really to be honest about it? Can I just challenge you this morning? Don't leave walking in darkness. Because if we live a life, we have a behavior that is living it out in darkness, before long we get lost, and then we get blind, and then we have a hard time getting back to the right place. But wherever you are, however long you've been in the darkness this morning, God can bring you out. He can give the real joy again. He can restore the relationships again. He can do all that because he's the miracle-working God. He's the only one that can give sight to the blind. He's the only one that can find us when we're lost. And he's the one who says he'll leave the 90 and 9 to go search for that one who's lost. Maybe this morning you say, Pastor, I don't even know how to be back to there. I don't even know how to restore that. I don't even know how to really have the kind of love you're talking about this morning. Maybe it was there in the past, but I don't know how to get back to that. Or maybe there's somebody that they have hurt me, and they've done things that they ought not do, and they've said things that they ought not say. And I don't know how to really truly love that person like you're talking about. Maybe this morning that's where you're at and that's where you're living. Can I say to you, if you'll bring it to the Lord, he's the one who'll do it. But you've got to come, you've got to repent, you've got to get right. And then you've got to turn around and say, okay, now I'm going to go love that person in God's way, in a biblical manner. Don't live a joyless Christian life because you didn't love and you walked in darkness. Father, we love you this morning. We thank you so much for the joy of being in your house. Lord, we thank you for the word of God, which you have given us, an opportunity, a place where we can come, where we can gather. And Lord, you have given us in this passage such a, a clear and strong mandate, such a clear and strong uh, reality of that which we must carry and we must learn. Lord, maybe there's somebody here today that just for a, a short time they've been in this place, or Lord, maybe it's been a little bit longer or a very long time. Would you help us today that you might break the bondage that can be there in our lives because of these things. Lord, that you might restore the spiritual sight. That we might come to the place where we can uh, move forward in joy and move forward in unity as a church. Not because we are trying to be unified, but because we can't help but be unified because of all that you're doing in our lives. We love you. We thank you. Pray that you'd help us to speak as we ought. Pray that you would help us to love as we ought. And in Jesus' name I pray. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Perhaps this morning you'd say, Pastor, you've talked a lot about...